Good morning. My name is Carter Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at Rio Vista. It seems like it's been forever since I've seen a lot of you, because it has been forever. Um, my wife and I, Jessica, were in India for pretty much the entire month of June. And the last two weekends, we've had family engagement. So this has been our first weekend back in a while, and I miss it. But when we were in India, uh, we spent two, the first two weeks while we were in India just traveling. And one of the things that we like to do is fill up our backpacks with a few clothes and go somewhere and then get on trains and other various sundry transportation devices and go around a country and experience a new culture. And so we spent two weeks uh, in the northern part of India going through different cities. And then we flew south to Bangalore, which is where we're beginning a new partnership in India. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that later in the service. But while we were up there in the first two weeks, we're traveling around. And one of the things that I'm really big on is experiencing culture, uh, trying new things. And so obviously in India, you have to eat the Indian food. And I will tell you right now, Indian food is my favorite food in the world now. It is unbelievable, especially Indian food in India. You know, it can get a little sketchy in America. But in India, it is unbelievable. The complexity of flavors and spices, uh, it's always fresh. You can't, like, heat up Indian food. Um, it, it's just amazing. You have the rice, you have the curry with the meat, you have the chapati or the naan bread and vegetables that even a five-year-old would like to eat. It's unbelievable. But there's a little bit of a trick if you're an American. India hasn't, necess- hasn't really embraced the fork and the knife yet if you know what I mean. So they eat with their hands, which is pretty cool. Um, The problem is when, you know, it's like every little kid's dream, like just eat with your hands. Uh, So for me, as a big kid, it was awesome. The problem though, is you began to eat with your hands, even though they're very hospitable, they give us a fork and a knife because they know we're Americans. Um, You're eating with your hands. You're like, this is really fun. But then you're realizing this is wildly impractical because it's falling down your arm and getting all over your hands. It's getting on your shirt and it's getting all over your face. And if you're a man with any kind of light scruff, it's going to get stuck in the beard. Um, and you're thinking, why are they so resistant to embrace the fork and the knife? I mean, come on, a lot of people use it. I mean, I get it, it's fun, but it's like on a date. What's it like on a date? You know, like all over your face. Like you really, I mean, you really got to love the other person on that one. So we're going through it and we're, you know, we're dealing with it. And, and then we get to Bangalore. And we meet up with the mission team there. And the first night we go out on Saturday night, we go to this 10-year anniversary celebration for this Christian drug and rehab uh, center. And it's one of those deals where after the celebration, everyone eats. It's like a big potluck, and you get your plate, and you go through, and they put the rice and the curry and the whole nine. So we go through, and there's, like, there's, no, there's no fork and knife here. So it's either hands or plate in the face. So we chose hands. And the other problem is there's no tables so now I'm in a real dilemma because I'm sitting in a circle with all these people I just met today and I'm holding with, and I'm like, this is gonna, this is gonna get awkward. So I'm eating, you know, and I'm trying to be as like, you know, polite as possible. And one of the men looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? What do you mean what I'm doing? I'm eating the food with my hands. Like, no, most of us. So he goes, listen, you're doing it all wrong. I was like, how do you do it wrong? You take your hand, you pick it up, you put it in your mouth. It's like, he goes, listen, there's a secret to it. And he goes, it's all about the thumb. Okay? So he shows me, he mixes it around. I was mixing it right. That's not very hard to do. And then he picks it up and he puts it in his mouth. And it was like so neat. 
I was like, how did you do that? It's not on his hand, it's not on his face, it's not on his shirt. And he says, listen, this is what you got to do. When you pick it up, you tuck your thumb right here in the back like this. So when you pick it up and you put it in your mouth, you just use your thumb to push it right into your mouth, and it's like precision. So I try it. Mind blown. <laughs> like, seriously, unbelievable. I get it. Now I get why you eat with your hands there. They don't embrace the fork and the knife because it's so much more fun with your hands. And they, they've got it down to a science. So I tell you that because if you ever have an opportunity to go on a mission trip with us there, which we're looking to do at least one in 2014, you'll know the trick. So you'll look like a legit local. You know, when we went out after that, it was like we're eating and Indians are looking at us like, all right, they got the thumb flick down. (laughs) But also the whole deal with that was, you know, we were eating with our hands the whole time and that was no problem. But until we realized the secret, the thumb flick, it didn't all come together. It was confusing. Why are they eating like this? It seems messy. How do you do this on a date? But once we realized the secret, it brought everything together. And I think in Acts 18 this morning, we've been going through this theme, life is mission, the entire year. And it's awesome. And there's a lot of concepts and a lot of ideas. And essentially, the whole idea is boiled down to one thing. God demands our entire life. Everything. Ourselves, our jobs, our possessions, our fam- everything, and we lay it at his feet for his mission that he's calling us to. And that's a big concept, um, and it's hard to put legs onto that sometimes. But I think this morning, for a lot of us, we may find, if you will, the thumb flick, the kind of secret to the whole idea of why that statement is true, that life is mission. And we're going to see that here in Acts 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 18. And in verse 1, here's what it says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So Paul previously, as you heard last week, was in Athens, a very religious city, a very intellectual city, and he goes through, and there's all these idols, and there's an idol to an unknown God, and he gives this great sermon about the idol of the unknown God. I actually know the true God, and a lot of people believe and accept Christ that day, and a lot of people reject him, kind of the general thing that always happens. People hate him, people believe in Jesus. And now he comes to Corinth. And you got to think Paul's on like, he's, he's pretty pumped right now. He's just been in Athens. Some good things have happened. Now he's going to Corinth. But he probably wasn't too excited to go to Corinth. Corinth is a city where the east and the west meet. It's a very cosmopolitan city, very diverse, big, bustling, modern, progressive city. But Corinth is also widely known, famously known throughout the world to be the most immoral city in the world. To be called, to be, to be said to live like a Corinthian is translated in Greek to mean to live immorally. So Corinth is associated with living immorally. It doesn't mean they didn't have religious and spiritual undertones in the city. They did. They had temples to Apollo and shrines to emperors and their families. They actually, up on the hill, about 1800 feet up on this plain, they had a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, and fertility, essentially kind of overlooking the city. But it's interesting because this temple to Aphrodite, love, beauty, and fertility overlooking the city, is essentially three of the main things that this city corrupted. They corrupted the idea of love and of beauty and of fertility. And this city, in Paul's mind, had to have been a waste of time. I mean, no one goes to Corinth. And this is where Paul arrives. And when he gets to Corinth, here's what happens. Verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila, that's a guy's name, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So it seems like a minor detail. If you're just reading, if you did your personal worship this week, you're probably reading, you're like, oh, that's nice. Paul's in Corinth, and he meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and they just left Rome. Cool. That's a really important aspect of this text, and it's really easy to to run off of. Well, first off, when we read this, we understand that Paul is coming into Corinth. When you trace it historically, he's in Corinth around 49 or 50 AD. So less than 20 years after Jesus has died and rose, he's in Corinth. And he meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And in most parts of Scripture, Priscilla is named before Aquila in other books of the Bible. And this is important because Priscilla was one of these women that was famously known in the Christian community. She was exceptional. She was like Lydia. Um, Not to diminish Aquila and how great he was as well. Um, They were a power couple. But she was exceptional. And Paul goes and he meets them. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome. Because Claudius was tired of the Jews and was more specifically tired of the Christian uproar of the Jewish Christians that were happening in Rome. So he tells all the Jews, you got to leave the city. Well, this is really interesting because less than 20 years after Jesus has died on the cross and rose, Christianity has already reached the most powerful and influential city in the world, Rome. And it didn't get there through the apostles. It didn't get there through people in full-time ministry like Paul. It got there through men and women like Priscilla and Aquila. Merchants, traders, farmers, construction workers had brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the most influential and powerful city in the entire world to the point that they're being kicked out of the city within 20 years. This is unbelievable. Because here's the thing. Priscilla and Aquila, normal everyday traders, they made tents, got something that is so important. It's a thumb flick, if you will. They realize that for a Christian, there's no such thing as a secular duty. There's no like, here's my secular life where I do all the things that are not spiritual. And then here's my spiritual life where I have church and I have community group and maybe the time I spend with God in the morning and personal worship. Got my spiritual stuff, got my secular stuff. See, for a Christian, there's no such thing as a secular duty. Colossians 3 tells us that whatever you do, do it for the Lord which means your job, cutting the grass, washing the dishes, how you raise your kids. Everything you do, you do it as a form of service and worship to Christ. And Priscilla and Aquila understood this. They realized that they weren't just called to go travel the trade routes with their beautiful tents and sell them to different cities. They weren't just bringing goods to sell, but they were bringing their faith as well. And where they went, them along with many others, brought goods as well as Christ to the point that Rome is being influenced so much by Christianity that the people, the Jews, the Jewish Christians are being kicked out. And I think this is something that is hard for us to understand in our culture. I know it's hard for me to understand. The idea that there's no secular duty for a Christian, the idea that whatever we do, we do it for the Lord, because I think that we can separate it. And I want to focus on one thing this morning that we see with Priscilla and Aquila. They didn't separate their vocation, their career, their job from worship. Their career, their job, their vocation was worship. Because everything they do, they do it for the Lord. 
And for us, I think it's easy to separate them, right? I have my vocation on my career, and I work hard at that to provide for my family and do other things. And then I have the Christian side of my life where I do church stuff. Well, see, Scripture doesn't teach this disconnect. It teaches one, your life is mission, including your job and your vocation. And if you really believe this, if you kind of let this trickle in, you let it affect you, and you realize that everything you do is for the Lord, and that your job and your vocation is for the Lord as well, it changes a few things. First off, and this is a hard one to swallow, your job is not for you. It's not yours. It's His. Because He gave you the skills, the ability, the mind, the opportunity, the education, the networks to have that job, and He has you there for a reason. It's not mindless. It's, we don't have a God that's sleeping up, you know, upstairs and just lets you do whatever you want. And as long as you go to church sometimes, he's happy. He gave you the mind, the networks, the opportunities, the education, the ability to have the job that you have. And he wants you to use it for him. Which means there's no excuse for us to leave our faith at the door, right? It's like when we step in the door of our business, standard business culture is you keep all things secular, you don't bring your own personal baggage. You don't bring your beliefs. You know, that, that's intolerant. You don't do that. Well, as Christians, there's no secular duty for us. So when we come to work, we bring Christ with us. And we look for opportunities to share and to show Christ, to listen to people, to pray for people, to love people, to be compassionate. Because where do we spend most of our time? Where do we have the greatest opportunity to love people and to show people the love of Christ and to tell them about the love of Christ. It's in our work. And Priscilla and Aquila got this. But secondly, and this is probably the hardest pill for us to swallow, if that's true and if we believe that, that our vocation, our career is ordained by God and it's his and he's given it to us to worship him with, well, then what we receive isn't ours either. So the salary, the time off, whatever it is, the compensation that we receive for our work isn't ours. It's his. And we worship him with that as well. You see, here's how most of us, not everyone, but most people probably look at the things that they receive, their treasure they receive from their work. They say, here's where it goes first. First off, it goes to our family. Good. That's great. Providing for your family is important. Putting food on the table, caring for your kids, giving them opportunities, number one. Number two, goes to education, or no, entertainment. Entertainment's important. Everyone needs it. You need your Netflix or you go insane, right? You got, you got to be able to relax. So you go buy a new bike or you get the Netflix account where you not only can watch Instacube, but you can also get them in the mail. Two for one. You have to have entertainment, so that's number two. Number three, savings. Savings is important. Proverbs and in, in Scripture teaches you it's important to save, to try to be free of debt. To have money set aside so when your AC breaks, you don't die and you can fix it. That you can help provide for your children when they go to college if you have that opportunity. That you can retire one day. All these things, good. Secondly, generosity, right? Whatever's left over now, you can be generous with. You can give some to the church. You can give some to a charity you believe in, an organization you believe in. You can sponsor a child, whatever. And then lastly, and this isn't everyone, but a lot of people, fifth, tithing, Right? Because it's 10%, it's every month, and it's a commitment. And that doesn't seem business savvy. It doesn't seem smart to do that. So it normally falls in fifth. And this isn't a message on tithing, so don't worry. You can stop sweating. 
But I think if, we're, if we look at our job as worship, our vocation, and we look at the things and the, the contributions that we're given, the rewards that we receive as not ours but His, then Scripture demands for us to look at a different order. Number one on the list is tithing. Why is that the most important thing? Because if it's not ours and it's His, who gets the first chunk of it? He does. That's why we tithe. That's why it's worship to tithe. Because we say, God, this is yours. You gave it to me. You gave me the job and the mind and the ability. And I'm going to give you the first 10% back. And then secondly, we provide for our family. That's an important thing, to provide for our family and our children and put food on the table. And then third, we save. That's important. It's, that, that's a, a biblical idea to save and to be smart financially. But here's the thing. We don't separate savings from generosity. We don't have like our savings account and then our generosity account. They're one account. And when God calls us to take the money that we're saving and be generous with it, we do so. That doesn't mean we do it without any discernment. But we, we don't hold anything that's untouchable. We use that which we have and we've been blessed with to be generous to others. And then last, entertainment. You can still afford your Netflix account. That's the order I think that Scripture commands of us because there's nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with savings. There's nothing. All these things are good, but we have to put them in the right order when we realize that our vocation and our career is not ours and what we receive is not ours. And then lastly, I think this is exciting. Everyone will like this. Christians are called to be the best at what they do. We're to be excellent at what we do. We're to be the best CEOs, the best salespeople, the best doctors, the best baristas, the best taxi drivers, the best administrative assistants. Why? Because we don't work for managers. We don't work for CEOs. We don't work for any other person. We work for him. And if he's beautiful and excellent and perfect, then what are we striving to be? We're striving to be excellent and hardworking and honest and compassionate. And we strive for excellence different than the rest of the world. We're not dishonest. We're not unethical. We strive to be excellent by putting on the fruits of the Spirit, by being compassionate, by being honest and hardworking, by listening. This is who we're called to be. This is who we strive to be. And this is what the model of Priscilla and Aquila gives us, the model that even Paul himself gives us, that our vocation, every part of our life is mission including what we do. And we can either worship God with our vocation, which he calls us to, or we can worship the God that everybody else worships with their vocation. And that God's called money and status. And God calls us to look at it a different way, to look at what the job that we have, the rewards that we've been given, and the skills that we have differently. And so Paul is with this awesome couple that's brought the gospel to Rome, as well as many others. And he stays with them. Here's what it says. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade and he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers. So Paul's a tent maker as well. And you got to, you got to believe that Priscilla and Aquila and Paul made some pretty boss tents. Boss means awesome. Really awesome tents. And he reasoned in the synagogue, this is Paul, every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So Paul actually right now is working a full-time job. He's not doing full-time ministry and he's only going to church to the Sabbath, to the synagogue on Sundays or Saturdays. And he's, then he's preaching the gospel to them. Because at this time he's in Corinth, there's not a lot of Christians, there's not a lot of base for him to be able to work. So he, he has to work now. But then here's what happens. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia 
And Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. So Silas and Timothy come, and what they bring is they bring contributions from other churches that enable Paul to stop making tents and to go back to what he's been called to do excellently, which is to preach the word. So Priscilla and Aquila are still making tents and doing that excellently and sharing and showing Christ to those they encounter. And Paul is now going back to what he's been called to do, which is to preach the word full-time, to be a pastor full-time. And then he goes to the Jews, as he always does, and you're going to see the broken record here. You see this all the time. Paul first goes to the Jews, and they hate him. Here's what happens. Verse 6, he went, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, the Jews, your blood be on your own heads. It's kind of harsh. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Here's essentially what he's saying. Paul is angry and he's frustrated and he's confused. And he's probably getting a little tired of consistently going and preaching the gospel to the Jews. And they're continually rejecting him and reviling him. He's coming to them. He's saying, listen, you you don't get it. I'm offering you freedom. I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering you a life apart from thinking that you have to measure up to some moral code in order for the God above to accept you. It doesn't work like that. There's a God, yes, but his son was Jesus Christ and he came to die for you and your sin and they're rejecting him. And so what Paul is saying is if you don't want anything to do with that and you want to commit spiritual suicide, go ahead. Your blood's on your own heads. I'm innocent. And then as like another little prod, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, those who you hate as well. And you would think, you would think at this point, Paul's like, I'm done with the Jews. All they ever do is oppose me and want to kill me and throw stones at me. It's all they ever do. So I'm done with them. I'm going to go to the other side of the city so I never have to see them again. Well, look what happens. Verse 7, and he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So instead of moving across the city, Paul walks out of the synagogue and he church plants next door to the synagogue. The very people he just said, go ahead and commit spiritual suicide. Why does he do this? Because he still cares for the Jews. He still wants them to believe in the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so he plants his church next door and he says, I hope you come in. Come in and listen. I really want some of you to understand what I'm saying is true. And you can guess what happens. Crispus, verse 8, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So what happens is the ruler of the synagogue becomes a Christian, and then many, many other Gentiles and Jews as well are beginning to become Christians. What's happening is God is beginning a movement in this unlikely city with this unlikely people that nobody would ever think would accept Jesus and be transformed by his gospel, there's a movement beginning. The church is growing. It's expanding. And you would think Paul would be excited. This is awesome. Paul's fearful, worried, and he wants to leave. And we know that because God comes to him in a vision next to encourage him. And here's what he says. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Essentially saying, continue to do what I have called you to do and do it excellently. Don't be afraid. For I am with you. 
And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. You see, Paul would have a more successful ministry in Corinth than in the learned and righteous city of Athens. He would be there for a long period of time, comparable to the other places that he stayed. He wrote two letters to them, First and Second Corinthians. He loved these people, and God began a massive movement for the gospel in this city. But Paul was scared. He was anxious, he was fearful, and he didn't want to stay. And I think this is because what happens is, when we begin to really soak in this idea that our whole life is mission, or even our vocation and our job, it's not ours, it's his. What we receive is not ours, it's his. We're called to do it excellently. What happens in time is we become fearful. We become anxious. We get nervous. Because we know opposition will come. We know persecution will come. We know we'll be made fun of and we'll be ridiculed and called unintelligent and all these things. And the same words that are given to Paul are the words that God gives to us. Don't be afraid. Continue to speak. Don't be silent. This is where I have placed you. This is where I want you. Nothing is going to happen to you because some of the most comforting words in the whole Bible, I am with you. We don't have the God sleeping upstairs. He's here with us. He cares for us. He made you through your environment and through your experiences to put you where you are today, what you're doing today, for a reason. And he doesn't want you to be fearful about what others think and what may happen. He wants you to know that he's with you and you have nothing to fear. So go on speaking. And then he says, because I have many people in this city. And that's twofold, right? One, I have many people in this city that are here for you if you need someone, a community to love you which is true of us, right? This church is here for you. We're here for each other, building a loving community. And that's the same for Paul when he was in Corinth. But secondly, he's telling Paul, as well as he's telling us, there's many more people in this city that I have, that I want you to talk to, that are ready to receive the gift of eternal life that I'm offering freely. He's telling Paul the work's not done. It's not time to leave yet. And it's the same for us. The work isn't done. It's just beginning, especially in this city, as well as it was in Corinth. And if you did your personal worship, you know what happens next, right? Paul's taken. It's kind of confusing. Like, whoa, I thought God said he was going to protect him. And now Paul's taken by the Jews, thrown in front of the proconsul, and the Jews want to either imprison him or harm him or maybe get him murdered, if that's possible. And he's brought there, and the, the proconsul looks at the Jews and says, what do you... Uh, get this guy out of here. This has nothing to do with me. You guys deal with it yourself. Get him out of here. And Paul enjoys a year and a half of ministry without any persecution, a very fruitful ministry. And you notice in that God doesn't even give Paul the chance to open his mouth to defend himself, right? Paul's probably thinking as he's being brought in, all right, God, I thought you said not be afraid. Thanks a lot. Look what's going to happen to me. And then he gets there and God doesn't even let him open his mouth before the case is thrown out and he's fine. And it's the same for us if we just are open and willing to see that God is here for us. We don't have to be afraid. And he's encouraging us to go forward to worship him in our vocation with our life. You know, maybe when I was reading uh, about Corinth, you began to associate Corinth with Fort Lauderdale. I think it's a pretty easy association. Big, bustling, modern, progressive city, religious undertones, but definitely not religious. 
I read a statistic this week that was both saddening and exciting. Fort Lauderdale in America is the 20th most post-Christian city. 20th most post-Christian city in the nation. And it's the 26th least Bible-minded city in the country. Those are pretty startling numbers. And what's exciting about that is I really believe that God is beginning a movement here. I really think that his gospel goes to people that live in this city, people like me, (laughs) that are wicked (laughs) and unlikely. And God comes to people like that, and he changes their hearts, and he shows them the truth of the gospel, and he shows them that life is mission. But guess what? He asked the church to rise up and to live that way and to talk to those people and to tell those people. And the way that a city is changed is not through the full-time pastors. It's through Priscilla and Aquila's. Those type of people change Rome. Not Paul. And that's the same here. You all change the city. The church changes the city. And that's the prayer for us in this church is that we would be a church that loves Jesus and loves other people and lives life as mission and understands that there's no secular duty for us. Everything we do, we do it for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word that is so encouraging. Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have nothing to fear, that you are with us that we can continue speaking because you have many people in this city. We thank you for this church and the loving community that you are building up here and the heart of the people here. Help us to understand that everything, everything we do is for you. That there's no part of our life that is quote-unquote secular. That our vocation is worship. That's not ours. What we receive is not ours and we're called to do it excellently. Help us to be a church that is full of Priscilla's and Aquila's, looking to share and show Christ through their life, through their work. Help us to trust you and to to know that you are here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.